few words in the English language hold as much oppressive weight as the word doom. Four letters, one syllable, so much power. Sometimes it can be hard to look away from such a doom that exists in our world. It's everywhere. And that is exactly why id Software allowed people to weaponize it in their little game from 1993. A reprieve from reality. An outlet for releasing frustration. You weren't facing death or destruction. You were bringing it. It was very much worthy of its title. Prior to this game, Doom was a scary prospect. But practically overnight, the first thing that came to mind when someone used the word was... You guys want to play Doom? In fact, a lot changed overnight when Doom came out. That clip from Friends is one of many examples of how Doom became a household name in the 90s. It was being referenced in all sorts of different media. It was being played at work and slashing productivity. Its multiplayer games were crashing networks at universities all over the place. At one point, it was installed on more computers than Microsoft Windows. It was a phenomenon, and I think we all know why. Doom was an exhilarating and challenging burst of creativity and excitement, and it excelled at forcing the player's hand and thrusting them into the action. But Doom wasn't just about weaponizing its namesake. Throughout the series, Doom hangs over you, and experiencing it, escaping it, or otherwise conquering it comes in many forms. Through dark and uncertain corridors, its puzzling layouts, daunting challenges, and oppressive atmosphere, Doom was far more than what level designer Sandy Peterson once called the computer equivalent of whack-a-mole. In pretty much every iteration of Doom, weaponizing textbook despair and raising hell took some effort, but it was so meticulous in crafting a fun experience that it made venturing through hell and back unforgettable. This is a constant throughout the Doom series. Its developers and designers are constantly looking for ways to mess you up. You have to stay on top of your weapons, your health, your ammo, all while desperately trying to navigate labyrinthian and atmospheric gauntlets, and enemies overwhelm you at every turn. With the odds stacked against you, you have to turn the tables and make the demons fear you. The way the series conditions you to this is where its genius truly lies. In this video, we'll be covering every main entry in the Doom series. I'll be dissecting each game to understand how its gameplay, levels, and everything in between utilize the concept of Doom in both the player's favor and the game's. We'll be discussing the series' evolution, what it brought to the industry, its legacy, and how it has survived after all these years. I'm Liam Triforce, and this is a Doom Retrospective. After prototyping a 3D engine in the early 90s, id Software released Wolfenstein 3D in 1992, and with it came major innovations in real-time rendering technology and game design. With an unorthodox method of displaying 3D environments for the time, John Carmack used raycasting to selectively render what the player could see from their field of view, rather than everything around them. This allowed Wolfenstein, as well as the 3D contemporaries that would follow, to run smoothly on PCs of that time period. The rest of the team used this engine to create the action game they'd wanted to make for a long time. Inspired by the early 80s DOS game Castle Wolfenstein, they built a game that was all about navigating mazes and killing enemies. You'd find treasure and food to refill your health, as well as keys for unlocking doors and proceeding onward through each floor. It was crude, but it was fast, and it was unlike anything the industry had seen at that point. The speed of its engine was maintained by its excellent gameplay, although it had limitations limitations that the developers wanted to build upon in order to create something truly timeless. For one, Wolfenstein 3D's levels are made up of rooms of equal height. Look at them as though they are dungeons in the original Legend of Zelda. 
Rooms that connect to each other and are spread across a single floor, with keys strewn about to create a puzzle box of sorts. Wolfenstein is no different. However, this made it difficult to communicate level elements to a player effectively with routes for progression. In Zelda, your route is ultimately clear, even if the means of proceeding isn't. In Wolfenstein, you're gonna find yourself checking every door to find your path. Oftentimes, the halls of Castle Wolfenstein will lead you to dead ends with treasure for score and extra lives lying around, both of which the industry was slowly evolving away from as home consoles and PCs became better homes for games than arcades, and as games shifted away from the arcade-conditioned high-score philosophy. What I think the designers strove for most was giving each level identity beyond unique art on the walls, an escape from those boxed-in series of corridors. Thankfully, John Carmack's upgrades to the engine allowed for this to become a reality. Once dubbed the Doom engine and later id Tech 1, graphical trickery enabled the engine to simulate different levels of elevation in a level, when in reality the game existed solely on a flat 2D plane. This is why the game will automatically land your bullets in enemies that appear to be above you. Walls and floors could also move to shift in accordance with scripted sequences, and there was an actual lighting solution this time. The team at id Software poured their blood, sweat, and tears into Doom. Adrian Carmack and the other artists were sculpting clay models of the enemies, taking photos of them at different angles, and creating 2D sprites based on those models. John Romero was crafting some of the most complex level designs that the engine could handle, to the point where his fellow programmers then had to figure out equally complex ways to accommodate for the levels. Midnight, December 10th, 1993. The first episode of Doom was uploaded to the internet as shareware with the full game available for people to purchase directly from id Software, if they so desired. And you all know the rest. The game is nearly 30 years old at this point, but I still think Doom holds up. Scratch that, it doesn't just hold up, it kicks ass. It is crucial to the history of video games, and nothing ever aims to dilute its focus. Kill demons, find secrets, solve puzzles, unlock doors. It never compromises on that vision. Let's talk about why Doom was such an important game in the wake of its release, and why it deserves to be experienced today. First of all, you select the first episode, pick your difficulty level, and bam, you're in the game. Doom makes itself known right away through Bobby Prince's metal middies, and the game begins its steady communication of ideas right here. The first level of Doom is painfully barebones at first glance, but it establishes the cornerstones of a Doom level in a straightforward and subtle manner. The first area is empty with no enemies in sight, with three paths for you to take. If you head straight, you'll run into your first possessed soldiers. But if you head left, you'll be rewarded with a suit of armor that will cut down the amount of damage you receive from enemy attacks. And the third path is a secret. One of the first things a player's eyes will be drawn to upon loading in will be this open field just outside of the base. There's a suit of mega armor sitting in a pool of toxic waste, which will overcharge your armor all the way up to 200% giving you significant protection from damage for a long time if you can make it last. A great way to kickstart your journey, and the secret path stocks you up on bullets and gives you a chance to sneak up behind the demons. Grabbing the armor, however, is dependent on finding a switch in the starting area that'll open a secret path outside. All of this stuff informs you of what is possible in Doom. Sure, you may have a clear path forward, but being well-equipped for the journey ahead isn't always guaranteed. As such, you'll need to explore and think outside of the box. Check every nook and cranny and you'll be rewarded with new weapons ahead of their intended introductions and power-ups, which both give you an edge in combat. This will also intimately familiarize you with the level in front of you, the act of which will become a recurring theme. At the beginning of each level, you'll have no idea where to go or what to do, but by the end, it'll be like you've lived there. 
The game continues to prepare you for the road ahead. In the second level, you're introduced to key cards. One path is locked, and the other leads into a room with the key card you need, surrounded by enemies. The path forward also establishes how a level's layout can organically drive the action in Doom. All it takes is a swarm of imps and a tight space to get the player to start making split-second decisions. Doom's combat channels that primal shoot-anything-that-moves instinct, but it is equally methodical. It's about picking the right tool for a job, whilst you strategically conserve ammo for the strongest enemies and the toughest encounters. It's a pretty engaging loop, even today, because it's either you or your enemy. If you get hit, that's on you. You need to be prepared for anything, and you'll need to either scour for health and armor pickups, or push back harder than them. Circle strafe around them, use your surroundings as leverage, know the best ways to deal damage, you get the idea. You're always moving, and you're always thinking. But levels are by far the most important factor in Doom's combat, and they are the reason Doom, on the whole, has stood the test of time. Locking you into a room as you acquire a new weapon, or shutting the lights off after grabbing a keycard, forces you to think on your feet. Navigating a claustrophobic maze, especially in the dark, means anticipating an ambush from around every corner. This conditioning process only becomes more relevant as you proceed, and the level designs become even crazier. Each episode starts you off with a default loadout, but they don't compensate for this in enemy placement at all, meaning that you immediately have to start shooting and hunting for better guns. At the beginning of episode 2, you're introduced to portals, which adds an entirely new layer of complexity to solving these labyrinths. Suddenly, it's as if two separate levels can exist at once, and they intersect with each other thanks to the keycards. And while you're figuring this all out, they're throwing pinkies and soldiers at you, lots of them. From here, they go hog wild. The second level of episode 2 has a cluttered and elaborate containment area, linked to a central hub that feels like the UAC attached their building to a temple in hell. And this central hub also branches off into a series of segmented areas with three keycards and plenty of secrets. Because of the nature of the level, enemies aren't nearly as relentless, but they can mess you up from across long distances if you let your guard down. The third level, however, is the exact opposite. It's a claustrophobic winding maze with plenty of enemies that force you to act quickly and effectively. And the Deimos Lab continues to merge the UAC into Hell, creating a mixed gauntlet of everything you've learned. The creativity never seems to die down as the game ramps up in challenge. If there was ever a time to put your pathfinding and resourcefulness to the test in finding secrets, it'd have to be in Episode 3. When I said that Doom asked you to put work in before you could rip and tear, I meant it. Boss enemies become regular goons by this point in the game, and ammo doesn't grow on trees, so you'd best know why you're using each weapon and how much ammo you're gonna need to stave off the armies of hell. The levels themselves brutally sell this balance you need to strike. There are times where you'll need to choose the most efficient path, navigate a maze-like wasteland with dead ends that each hold pieces of the level's puzzle, complete sandboxes, clear gauntlets, and all while the demons continue to relentlessly pursue you. Some pursue you a little too closely? I really hate Lost Souls, especially when they're in large groups because they swarm you like little mosquitoes. But otherwise, I have a blast solving these levels, and they serve as proof of how puzzling level design can organically create tension, dictate pacing, and drive combat. In spite of its age, the level design of Doom is a masterclass in creating enthralling and creative FPS levels. They obviously don't fit the pace of every game, but the lessons are universal. In fact, Doom is one of the main reasons I am so passionate about level design, and not just because it was one of the first games I ever played. The levels communicate so much about the game and carry the fun through to the end. Thanks to these levels, Doom's primal and fierce combat loop is conveyed as something that needs to be treated like a game of chess.
in which you need to use the right pawn for a job in an uncertain landscape. And in this case, your opponent is the level. One of the key components in creating a good first-person shooter from a modern perspective is making the shooting feel good. I mean, I probably didn't need to tell you that. But something that I feel they must also do is let the levels dictate how the shooting takes place. Simple or primitive shooting mechanics, especially in Doom's case, can only thrive in an environment that allows them to do so. Let me give you an example from a more recent game. You might think that Call of Duty Zombies was so successful because it just gave players an opportunity to turn their brains off and shoot, but the mode is way more intelligent than you'd think. Sure, you'll be shooting zombies by the thousands with no nuance or variation to its core combat, but without Juggernog, just two hits is enough to kill you. Even with Juggernog affording you five hits, one swarm is all it'll take to send you to an early grave. So you'll have to plan accordingly. Navigate effectively around the map to avoid getting cut off by zombies, think two steps ahead, communicate with your teammates, use your weapons strategically while preserving resources, and most importantly, watch your back. A lot of planning and thought goes into surviving for as long as possible. It's not just a shooting gallery. And you can trace the origins of this design philosophy straight back to Doom. Mindless on the surface, but attentive and strategic as you learn the rules of the road. Of course, it was their first attempt at fleshing out a game of this kind. There were bound to be missteps. Certain levels are a bit much, and they go overboard with their complicated layouts. The unholy cathedral in episode 3 is an endless maze with so many moving parts that a puzzle box with intelligently implemented combat spaces turns into, okay, everyone's dead, where do I go? And then you spend 10 minutes retracing your steps before you find the one path you missed. This is perhaps the greatest weakness of old school Doom's level design. The map you can access is rudimentary and only conveys so much information, so in the more complicated stages you may find yourself walking through the same hallways you've already visited to gather more information. And then you get lost, and have to remember everything. On the opposite side of the spectrum, I have a strong distaste for the added fourth episode in the Ultimate Doom, Thy Flesh Consumed. The levels are cluttered with enemies and the terrain is unforgiving. Any inspiration that I can draw from its flexible level designs are undermined by the pits you have to cross while fighting barons, cacos, and these goddamn mosquito monsters. Just a barrage of shit on my screen all at once. Genuinely, there are some great ideas in these levels. This central hub full of enemies connects to tightly packed areas that have keys lying in wait, and it all loops back around once you can memorize where you've been. And then you have these massive hell cities with multiple buildings to search. However, Doom thrives when its level design directly inspires combat, whereas the level design in Episode 4 actively works against it. I can barely keep track of what's under my feet or the walls that surround me, let alone the demons I'm trying to kill. If you ask me, and I know you didn't, but I'm gonna say it anyway, Sigil is what Episode 4 should have been. In 2019, John Romero came back to Doom and designed his very own unofficial Episode 5, which would later become official in the Bethesda-published source port on consoles. The imagination of Doom's sinuous design is heightened by Romero's decades of experience with the genre. Take a look at this level. You have three paths to take from the very beginning, and while you have to do them all eventually, it later becomes an endurance run of memorization and calculated movement. You also have a motley crowd of level shapes and layouts, tense lighting, terrifying corridors, intelligent enemy placement in comparison to Episode 4, a perfect amount of challenge for testing even the most seasoned of Doom players, and for demonstrating, once more, how Doom's combat can shine brightest in the situations that a designer can create. Sigil's existence, in and of itself, is hard evidence of Doom's legacy. 
Because of the formula that had been established, Doom's engine and combat provided up-and-coming game designers with endless possibilities. So, then came the mods and the wads. Once upon a time, I said that there were plenty of community mods and maps available for Half-Life 2 thanks to the Source engine. Doom mods make the number of mods for HL2 seem tiny in comparison. I won't discuss these mods in full detail because Doom mods exist in their own world separate from the context of this series' evolution, but they absolutely represent the legacy of this game. Brutal Doom in particular feels almost like an oddball reimagining of the original game, rather than just an ultra-violent upgrade. Weapons are reworked, and enemy AI and attack patterns have been rewritten to intensify the core combat loop. There are a lot of mods, and if you enjoy Doom in any capacity, id Software's episodes are only the beginning. That said, id Software did create a proper sequel to Doom in the form of Doom 2 Hell on Earth. Although, it feels more like a cross between a sequel and an expansion. I'll explain. Doom 2 focused primarily on expanding level sizes thanks to advancements in the engine, meaning more demons, more boss enemies amongst regular demons, and more possibilities for hiding keys. It only added one new weapon, the Super Shotgun, and a few new enemy types including the Mancubus, Revenant, Pain Elemental, and the Godforsaken Archvile. The new demon types, as you'd expect, increase the variety in combat and level design. And make no mistake, the Super Shotgun may be the only new weapon, but it quickly becomes the most reliable one in the entire game. Tons of damage and plenty of ammo to draw from, despite it using two shells per shot. The new demons counteract its devastating power, therefore introducing a new way to balance your weapon strategy. Aside from that, the basic combat pattern goes largely unchanged. What does instill innovation in this pattern is the focused level design of Doom 2. Levels often have discernible theming, even more so than the original game. You have the UAC facilities that show you the ropes, followed by the expansion in both size and ideas as you connect the dots in a jungle of halls and towers. My favorite levels take place in the city, because you have a ton of buildings in an enclosed space that are separate by design and appearance, but connected through keycards, portals, and shortcuts. That and there are demons overlooking every corner of the city, so there's nowhere to run. So much thought and consideration went into these levels, and this continues into hell. Barrels of Fun and the Monster Condo serve as the most poignant examples. More so the Monster Condo as its areas are themed after rooms you'd find in a mansion and puzzles fall in line with that description. The other level that certainly makes a name for itself with its central idea is the Chasm. I don't think I need to say it, but this is probably the worst level in Doom 2 by a long shot. Remember Episode 4's tricky platforms and hellish enemy placement? Well, imagine that distilled into a single level and cranked up to 11. Just re-watching this footage is giving me anxiety. I can remember how frustrated I was with the Thin Paths and the Lost Souls, and I remember getting lost and having to trek all the way back through the same paths I'd already traversed. This should be a textbook demonstration of how easy it is to get lost in levels this big, and this becomes especially apparent as the game draws to a close. Their goal of making bigger levels was certainly achieved, but in levels like the Chasm, you begin to wonder if that goal was justified. Doom 2's best levels are densely packed and make great use of their size, whereas levels like this are bloated and confusing. The game, at the very least, has an astounding conclusion for the time period. The Icon of Sin is intense due to the terrain and the sheer amount of enemies throwing themselves at you, and it's hard to maintain patience. And while all of this is going on, the music is nothing but a faint, ominous whistle.
Doom 2 is a great sequel, even if I use the word sequel loosely. It feels more like a definitive version of the original game, with greater theming, proper design cohesion, more enemies, and a more powerful version of the same engine. However, the January 1995 issue of Next Generation magazine summed the game's circumstances up better than I ever could. Now that the first-person interface has become the design of choice for the entire industry, it will need to find new innovations, or it will quickly find its playing catch-up in its own game niche. So what did they do? They made Quake. But first, a brief intermission as we ask the age-old question. Can it run Doom? In the 90s, Doom was something that was best experienced on a PC. But home consoles, where the vast majority of gamers played during that time period, deserved a chance to have Doom. This resulted in a slew of home console ports that all aimed to give players that chance, with varying degrees of success. So just for fun, let's take a brief look at the history of console Doom ports. The best console version of Doom to release in the 90s, if you ask me, is the PlayStation version. In one package, you get Doom and Doom 2 with enhanced graphical effects, and a terrifying soundtrack composed by Aubrey Hodges, who would later go on to create a bone-chilling score for Doom 64. More on that later. Doom on the PlayStation was an entirely unique and worthwhile experience, transforming each encounter and every hallway into an unpredictable bout with demons that can easily overwhelm you. The atmosphere completely shifts, and it makes those tense moments from the original DOS version that much more horrific. Speaking of horrific, the Sega Saturn version was based on this port, but it was horrible. It was originally going to use a hardware-accelerated engine that would deliver the definitive console port of Doom, but id Software denied the use of this engine due to the texture distortion that occurred, thus forcing the developers to use software rendering and causing the end result to have an unplayable framerate. Still, due to it having the finesse of the PlayStation version, I guess it's technically better than the 3DO port, this one has an interesting history. Developed by Art Data Interactive, it was promised to be an ambitious conversion, with more content and graphics superior to the DOS version. But due to... uh... mismanagement? A sole programmer, Rebecca Heinemann, was contracted to complete a port of the game in 10 weeks. The soundtrack was re-recorded by the CEO of Art Data and his band in a garage, and the end result sounds pretty good and the engine was modified and optimized to the best of Rebecca's abilities in the time that she was given. The end result was, simply put, impressive for being completed in a 10-week deadline, but definitely not the port that was being hyped up back then. If you'd like to learn more, Rebecca discussed the full story in a video. I'll leave a link to that in the description. Each console port has its quirks, and nearly all of them are missing content. The 32X version looks and runs well, but it has music that sounds like somebody emptying their bowels. This is not the fault of the Genesis sound chip. This is just poor utilization of it. Take a listen to the kick-ass metal soundtrack of Thunder Force 4. This is the kind of stuff that only the Genesis was capable of back then, and it's a shame that the Doom soundtrack couldn't be translated well. The Jaguar version was developed by id Software themselves, and by all accounts it's a great port, but rather than having butchered music, there isn't any music at all during gameplay. 
The Super Nintendo and Game Boy Advance ports are both comparable, and they both have a low resolution and inconsistent frame rate. The low resolution is more tolerable on the GBA smaller screen, and both of these ports, especially the Super Nintendo port, were astounding technical achievements when they were released. They definitely laid the groundwork for what was possible when Doom's source code was released to the public. As technology got better, console Doom ports would eventually become viable ways to experience the game, with the 7th and 8th generation ports by Nerve Software being excellent equivalent options for those without access to a home computer. Although, for a game like Doom, you don't necessarily need a video game console. In 1997, it released the source code for Doom, and thus began the era of Can It Run Doom, in which skilled programmers ported the game to… anything with buttons and a screen. Printers, an ATM, a thermostat, a calculator, even a pregnancy tester can run Doom. Truly, we are blessed to exist in a timeline wherein you can find out you're pregnant and play Doom on the same device. With all that said, what is the best way to play Doom today? Well, there are a ton of source ports available on PC right now. If you'd like to play the game in its original, unaltered form with customizable controls, then your best option is Chocolate Doom. It aims to be as accurate as possible to the original DOS release, even maintaining bugs found in that version. For the sake of the video, this is how I recorded all of my footage for Doom and Doom 2, and it's usually how I prefer to replay the games today. Otherwise, most people swear by GZ Doom. It is fully customizable inside and out, supports high frame rates, and almost any mod that you can think of will work with it, including Sigil. In fact, the uh, config file tells you to use GZ Doom. For years, it's been the go-to source port for plenty of people, however, the more recent and official Unity port has come to rival it. Regardless, you have plenty of great options. Quake was id Software's first truly 3D game, complete with jumping, 360 degrees of vision, and multi-leveled layered structures and levels that weren't possible in Doom. It carried an unsettling yet unmistakable atmosphere with it, beautifully and terrifyingly evocative of Lovecraftian horror. It was a great game, and it sent shockwaves throughout the industry. Up until this point, any game that attempted to imitate Doom or flesh out the core of its identity would be perceived as a Doom clone. Quake changed everything. The term first-person shooter would be adopted, the WASD mouse combo was popularized, and thus began a new era for the genre. And the genre would expand and transform as it incorporated elements from adventure games, RPGs, stealth games, and more until the first-person perspective became just another means of delivering games. As the years went by, designers were constantly finding new ways to create shooters. Half-Life's unbroken narrative was carried through to the end with scripted sequences, breathing life into the Black Mesa research facility, and the Resonance Cascade that started it all. Everything unfolded before your very eyes without it ever taking control away from you. But on top of that, it involved the player in problem solving in order to proceed, forcing them to assess the world around them and think differently about how to approach situations. And then, the full-blown modernization of the first-person shooter genre as we know it came along. Halo Combat Evolved. This game demonstrated how a decidedly linear shooter could differentiate its levels with varied encounters, and colossal enemy bases that you'd have to storm either on foot with strategy, or with a high-powered vehicle. It also had a strong focus on its weapons. You could only carry two weapons at a time, but each of them had their own distinct purpose, and they can benefit you when used effectively. It's an adaptation of what made the combat of Doom work so well in the first place, and you have to play aggressively in order to obtain the more powerful weapons at a level. It's all about thinking critically, resourcefully, and carefully. 
Although the game was unquestionably straightforward from beginning to end, the game asks you to consider so much, and that careful consideration, the planning that goes into storming a base or taking down hordes of elites, is what kept Halo alluring throughout its run with Bungie, right up to the fall of Reach. As shooters continued to innovate and prosper in their own ways throughout the 2000s, shooters like Doom and Quake were slowly but surely left in the dust. Games were constantly iterating on the conventions that Doom established. Here are some examples. Perfect Dark had a freeform and interconnected objective system, itself an extension of Rare's other revolutionary shooter, Goldeneye. An objective system was a flexible and dynamic way to replace finding keycards in a level. You were meeting ever-changing criteria in order to advance, finding the figurative keys to proceed, rather than literally. Half-Life 2 allowed its players to take control of a detailed physics engine to solve puzzles, kill enemies, well, do just about anything, really. Halo 2 implemented a regenerating health system to keep its pacing in check, and in order to assist players in sharpening their decision-making. Things were moving pretty fast. When Doom was to make its triumphant return and show the new guys how it's done, it needed to either rethink the FPS genre, or stick to its guns and modernize its core gameplay. Doom 3 did neither of those things. While the game was commercially successful, I don't think it's a stretch to say that it became a footnote in both Doom's history and the genre's history. Today, it finds itself sandwiched between the legacies of both of its direct competitors that year, the two big H's. But it is an important game to the legacy of Doom. It made mistakes. Mistakes that future id software designers would take into account. The game's opening closely follows in Half-Life's footsteps. Almost too closely. Like, you're given ample time to explore the UAC and learn about the experiments they're running, but then you face a cataclysmic event that forces you to trek back through the halls of the facility, learning and becoming properly equipped as you do so. It's, uh, it's Half-Life to a T. I mean, I guess you can play Super Turbo Turkey Puncher 3 in this game. Can't do that in Half-Life. If nothing else, the game's opening is a phenomenal demonstration of the engine's technical prowess. The lighting can powerfully accompany any mood the designers want to set. A pentagram can suddenly illuminate a dark room while the hideous colors of hell seem to pop. And the shadows are strong. So strong, in fact, that they are actually part of the game's design. Much like the flickering lights or sudden power outages in the original Doom. Here's what I mean. The shadows in this game are so thick that you'll need to use a flashlight in order to see anything. This incentivizes exploration in a pretty unique way, and while you're checking dark areas for goodies, you never know what might be lurking in there waiting for you. Doom 3 is a survival horror game by trade, and it does a lot with that moniker. There's no music in most instances, meaning the only sounds to accompany you are the ambient sounds of the UAC and the footsteps of nearby demons. It keeps you on your toes, and you'd better be prepared, because the combat of Doom 3 is a nice blend of old-school Doom and grounded Resident Evil-esque combat. Your starting weapons are intentionally underpowered for most of the game. The pistol has a low firing rate and does minimal damage, and the shotgun needs to be almost crammed right down a demon's throat in order to be most effective. Yeah, I know that's how shotguns work, but it's not nearly as lenient as it was in the original Doom games, where you could use it as a rifle if you wanted to. If you're even a touch too far away from your enemy, it'll take a few shells to kill them. Even the SMG is pretty weak. It has a large clip, but it chews through ammo. Although the game won't overwhelm you with enemies, relying on these weapons, which you'll often need to do, makes micromanaging multiple demons, especially in dark and claustrophobic spaces, much more difficult. However, the caveat to all of this is that they are excellent for conserving ammo for your more powerful weapons like the chain gun, 
rocket launcher, and plasma rifle, so that when you're faced with the more difficult and harrowing battles, you'll have awesome weapons to rely on as a reward for toughing it out. This keeps the game tense in most areas, and because you need to push forward in order to deal the most damage with weaker weapons, you'll be putting yourself in harm's way more often, which incentivizes thorough exploration with your flashlight. My favorite aspect of Doom 3's survival horror focus actually ended up being the flashlight. I mentioned how effective it is in checking the shadows, but there's something else that keeps things spooky. In the original game, you couldn't have your flashlight and gun equipped at the same time. This means that in battles that take place in almost pitch black darkness, you'll have to rely on the muzzle flashes of your weapons, the sounds a demon is making, and your own memory in order to survive. This is something that makes Doom 3 a uniquely anxious game to experience, and I mean that in the best possible way. The BFG edition attaches the flashlight to your weapons, which tears down a lot of the horror the darkness in Doom 3 created, so I'd personally recommend playing the original version on PC or Xbox. That is, if I were actually able to wholeheartedly recommend this game, because I don't think I can. Doom 3 may have an excellent combat loop, but it doesn't carry the game to the end. These industrial hallways that I've been showing you make up about 90% of the game. You occasionally have to do some pathfinding or solve a puzzle, but most of the game is just killing demons at the same pace in the same locations. The hell levels are great, but you have to wait until the end of the game to see them. The story feels pretty thrown together, with none of the nuance that made Half-Life the game that it was. I can't remember the name of a single character from this game, and I can barely remember the events that led up to the Marine entering hell. It feels like a story only existed so that they can string together gameplay elements and levels. At first I thought the PDA could have given me more of a reason to become invested in the game's story, but it ended up being one of the worst aspects of this game. Essentially, there are audio logs strewn about the world of Doom 3 that contain passcodes for ammo lockers. The lockers themselves are immensely useful as they contain supplies, but you can only find out the code for unlocking them after listening to each individual audio log entry all the way through. It'd be nice if you could listen to them and commit them to memory as you venture towards them, but oftentimes the audio logs will be placed right in the vicinity of the storage locker, forcing you to sit around and wait for the code to be spoken. It'd be nice if the audio logs were either more informative as parts of the game's lore, or if they were the only pieces of story you could really get, like in Metroid Prime, but most of them discuss things that are completely irrelevant to you or your current situation. Imagine if Doom 3's different areas, not that there are many different areas, all told a story you could watch unfold in Remnants, such as the corpses strewn about, broken machinery, and escaped demonic experiments in the vein of Half-Life's questionable ethics chapter. Audio logs would inform you of what happened in the area, giving you context for the new enemy you'd find yourself up against. Kind of like the Phazon Mines in Metroid Prime once again. But unfortunately, none of that was attempted. All of this makes Doom 3 a very dull game. I wish I could be more excited about slicing up a powerful demon with a strategic use of the soul cube, or feel satisfaction when I manage to clear out a dark room with nothing but my intuition to guide my bullets, but the truth is, the game's best ideas are flattened and stretched across its runtime like a rolling pin to a firm ball of dough. And what's saddest about this game is that its best elements had already been done before in Doom 64. Released by Midway Games in 1997, Doom 64 was a terrifying take on the core gameplay of Doom. Its enemies were powerful, its lighting was consistently eerie, its art direction and setting offered anything but comfort or familiarity, and its levels would confuse and squeeze the life out of the player, often using more complex scripting than the original Doom games to change the structure of levels as you find keys and press switches. 
new problems begin to unfold before your eyes. The levels in Doom 64 are so intricate. There are so many paths to take and so many routes to remember, and no two levels have the same shape. And while you're exploring, the strongest demons storm through the halls, hunting you down. You'll hardly know what to expect. The game is constantly trying its damnedest to crush you under the weight of its winding labyrinths and brutal combat. And while you're trying to stay alive and make it through levels, the game's atmosphere doesn't give you much hope or pushback. It is unnerving, to say the least. You're walking through abandoned castles and cities and hell, with ambiguous environmental storytelling to back them up. One of my fondest memories with this game being spooky as all hell pertains to the level Dark Citadel. You have this central lap that you run with faint light coming from the windows, and there are rooms adjacent to this hallway, but in those rooms are bodies strung up on the walls, dark traps, a library maze, and enemies waiting around corners. Some of them just wander these dimly lit halls. It's really creepy. It just goes to show you how effective minimalistic storytelling can be in Doom, and what Doom 3 could have done instead. Adding to the horror, you also have the utterly petrifying soundtrack courtesy of Aubrey Hodges of Doom PS1 fame. The drones in this game are harsh, industrial, and really fucking nasty. One of the songs even samples a baby crying. Aubrey is really good at making me squeamish, and I really miss his work on Doom. When you pair this significant upgrade to the design of Doom with Doom 64's knack for horror, you get what I believe to be the true Doom 3. It manages to introduce genuine fear into Doom without compromising on its DNA. It pushes you to earn that carnage that the series is known for allowing the player to unleash. If it's pushing you, then you push right back. And that is what Doom is all about. It's not perfect. It has a ton of levels, which puts a damper on its effectiveness as you inch closer to the end of the game. These levels are all well designed, but it becomes harder to appreciate them as you go through the same motions over and over again, especially because this is the third Doom game in this style. Truthfully, it may have been a result of the dry-cut formula that many shooters were drawing from, which, as I discussed, was changed and built upon in future FPS games. That, and due to the length and challenge of certain levels, being stripped of your weapons and sent back to the beginning like the original Doom games is more frustrating than it is justifiably punishing. There's also an enemy that shoots out lost souls like a machine gun, so I'm gonna have to automatically dock points off of this game. It's easy to draw comparisons between Doom 64 and Quake, because Quake accomplished similar things. But Doom 64 does so much with the limitations of its engine, making it an impressive game for totally different reasons. Oh, and one final thing of note. Many people played this game back when it came out, and one of those people was a future game director named Hugo Martin. I wish Hugo Martin was my dad. Hugo Martin was my dad. Was my dad. Was my dad. Was Hugo Martin was my dad. It was the first Doom game he had ever played, and he appreciated how it kept the player on their toes. He'd take the lessons he learned as a fan and developer of games with him when he eventually joined id Software and reintroduced Doom to the world, along with Marty Stratton and the team. However, it would take quite a while for that to happen. After Doom 3, the series entered its second hiatus. Doom 4 was alluded to and announced between 2007 and 2008, with John Carmack inferring that the gameplay would be more in line with the classic Doom games. It then entered development hell. Both fans and developers at id agreed that the game that it was shaping up to be 
wasn't Doom. It was a cinematic, scripted, story-driven shooter that drew unfavorable comparisons to Call of Duty. And not many people at id, including creative director Kevin Cloud, were feeling very confident in it. The game was being developed during a relatively bleak era for shooters. The Call of Duty series, which once had honorable roots, became an annualized franchise delivering game after game of the same old shit. At one point, it delivered cinematic and scripted gameplay with unparalleled finesse, and I'll cite Call of Duty 4 as a prime example. Modern Warfare had something to say about war, and it contextualized its combat and its pivotal moments in such beautiful ways. But eventually, this passion dried up. Very minute changes were being made to the core gameplay every year, and that intelligent yet straightforward level design framework was being milked dry. You'd be hard-pressed to find die-hard fans of Call of Duty Ghosts or Advanced Warfare. That said, the franchise still makes a shitload for Activision, setting records with every new game and generating billions of dollars in revenue every year. And of course, everybody wanted a slice of that pie. It got to the point where other franchises were being corrupted by the late 2000s, early 2010s FPS checklist. Quake 4, the Turok reboot, the later Battlefield games, Medal of Honor, Ugh, that one still stings. First-person shooters dominated a quarter of all video game sales by 2016. These games were gonna print money regardless. But in the end, they all borrowed mechanics from each other, meaning that new games in the genre blended together. What the genre needed was a reintroduction of elements from the past. The old-school FPS formula was malleable, as proven by the games that evolved from them. In an oversaturated market of games all trying to do the exact same thing, the old had an opportunity to become new again. And to be honest, Doom and its 90s contemporaries always held their own charm, despite being the first of their kind. As shooters evolved further and further away from finding keys in non-linear mazes, and introduced concepts that became mainstays like reloading, regenerating health, and rollercoaster-esque scripted level design, these old-school shooters slowly began to have a place in the industry again and the talented people at Machine Games would be the first to prove it. Wolfenstein The New Order was a game changer when it came out. It managed to elegantly blend old and new FPS tropes into one coherent game. You had maze-like level design with health and armor pickups to find, integrated into a stealth system that kept encounters dynamic. A skill tree that rewards you for finding your own playstyle, rather than mindlessly allocating skill points to different branches like so many other games from the 2010s. You could carry as many weapons as the designers allowed, and dual wield pretty much all of them. But you also had mechanics like ADS and reloading to maintain the game's frantic yet calculated pacing. And best of all, you had the story. They managed to incorporate this emotional narrative into a game that is unabashedly and hilariously violent. The game was brilliant, and it proved that there was still fight left in the FPS genre. It came out in 2014, which was also the year that Doom 4 was finally re-revealed at QuakeCon. The FPS renaissance was upon us, and we were about to find out why. Doom 4 was retitled simply and boldly as just Doom, and it received a standing ovation at QuakeCon 2014 behind closed doors, before finally being shown to the public at E3 2015. I had my reservations, as I'm sure many of us did back then. I thought the glory kill system was hokey, and I wasn't sure of the gameplay itself, but I appreciated the return of the key cards and puzzle box level design, as well as the game's sense of humor. Regardless, all we could do from then on was wait. About a year later, 
the game came out. I didn't have a PC or a console that could run it at the time, but I started to hear great things about it. The game wasn't just an okay reboot, supposedly it was good. Really good. Suddenly, I had an overwhelming urge to play this game. Was Doom finally back after all these years? I finally acquired the hardware necessary to play this new Doom game later that year, and without hesitation, I began playing. And then I beat it. And then I beat it again. And then I went for every upgrade. And then I went for every collectible. And then I went for every achievement. And then I was replaying the game just for the hell of it. Needless to say, they nailed it. But how? Well, let's take a look. They are rage. Brutal. Without mercy. But you, you will be worse. Rip and tear until it is done. The game's first moments are highly revered, and for good reason. It wastes no time whatsoever, it makes a statement, and it's really damn effective in showing you the ropes. You awake in a coffin with a curious mark on it, you smash a demon's head in, and suddenly you're in the game. You're shooting shit up. The game illustrates just how powerful you are with the Praetor suit being decorated with candles, and your helmet carrying that same mark from the coffin. The same coffin that people were bowing down to. The game tries to communicate narrative to you, but this new Doom guy isn't having any of it. In every Doom game, your motivation has simply been to kill demons. You've never needed anything more, not even in Doom 3. But of course, they are the first to poke fun at needing justification for that matter. This moment right here bridges into one of the sickest title drops in history. I'm willing to take full responsibility for the horrible events of the last 24 hours, but you must understand. Our interest in their world was purely for the betterment of mankind. Everything has clearly gotten out of hand now. But it was worth the risk, I assure you. This introduction was a huge deal when the game first released, and it still holds up pretty strongly today. The team understood that first impressions were everything, and rather than bloating the player's first minutes with tutorials and exposition, we understand exactly what we need to do, and we have assumed the role of the Doom Slayer when his reactions are in line with ours. Smash that Argent energy! Fist bump that action figure! <laughs> yeah, we're one and the same. While parts of the game are contradictory to its stance, such as moments where they lock you in rooms with characters and you're forced to listen to them info-dump context on you, a lot of this is masked by the game's cognizant tone and personality. Your character couldn't give less of a shit about the ramifications of his actions, and why should he? All he knows is that the UAC is harvesting energy from hell, and that's no good. In reality, what context did we really need for Doom back then? None. You'd only get bits and pieces of story as you'd clear each episode, and that was all you really needed. Want more fuel? They killed your beloved Daisy. Rip and tear. Doom 2016's intro harkens back to that philosophy in the best possible ways. This was refreshing not just for a Doom game, but also as a reprieve from the plentiful amount of heavily scripted shooters that were so far up their own ass, the only thing they could give you a taste of was shit. For the first time in years, all you really needed was a gun and something to shoot. Speaking of shooting, 
Combat is also very effectively introduced in these first moments, and it's here where I learned how crucial glory kills were to this game's design. These were an adaptation of a mechanic that existed in Doom 4's early days, and they were sped up significantly here. Essentially, when you shoot an enemy enough, they'll stagger and start to glow, signaling an opportunity for a melee finisher. Now before I say anything more, these glory kills are a joy to watch, that much was clear to me from the very beginning. Considering how tongue-in-cheek this game is over just about everything, including the events of its own narrative, these over-the-top finishers are creative, hilarious, and positively satisfying. They are slapstick in nature as if the demons are made of Play-Doh, but there are so many of them and they all carry the momentum of the game despite briefly taking the control away from the player. You can stomp on demons like they're Goombas, break their jaws, sweep their legs, slit their throats with their own fucking teeth, even rip them in half completely. A massive kudos to Doom 2016's animation director Shinichiro Hara for leading the weighty and impactful animation in this game. And they don't just exist in the game for spectacle's sake, hell no. Every time you land a glory kill, you're guaranteed to be rewarded with a pool of health. That may seem like a small detail, but in heated battles, killing demons in this manner could make the difference between life and death. So when you're low on health, you'll need to force yourself to look for a demon to kill. This organically gets the player thinking about strategy and target prioritization in a fight. When you're low on health, you'll need to avoid the tougher demons and sort out the smaller ones for health regen. You constantly need to be on the move, and you constantly need to be making decisions. The glory kills are effective and gratifying in this way, as they force you to stay in the action when you're in danger, rather than allowing you to run from it. Chainsaw kills serve a similar purpose, although you are rewarded with pools of ammo rather than health, and you need to be clever about your usage due to the thing's limited fuel supply. Every demon will take a different amount of fuel to kill, and you should only have this thing on you when you need it most. Another element key to this game's combat are the enemies themselves. If there's one thing Doom 3 did really well, it was differentiating attack patterns between enemies. The pinky was terrifying in that game because it was much faster and jumpier than you could have ever hoped to be, so you'd absolutely have to prioritize them before you could think about running. Doom 2016 fleshes out attack patterns even more so. We've come a long way since the days of different wandering sprites shooting at you. Imps run and jump unpredictably, Hell Knights will deliberately chase you down and deal significant damage with their slam ability, soldiers exploit their defensive capabilities to catch you off guard, pinkies will charge straight into you and throw off your combat rhythm if you aren't paying attention, mancubi will melt you if you stick too close to them, and barons use a mixture of strategies to trip you up. This will innately get you thinking about weapon strategies. A mancubus may be powerful, but they are mostly stationary, so you don't need to worry about using weapons that stagger often. Barons may be asking for some strong firepower, while an explosive shot from the shotgun could satisfyingly clear out groups of common fodder. The super shotgun is an incredibly reliable way of leading a full frontal assault, even if it leaves you vulnerable to everything else. And if you're afraid of being overwhelmed, try keeping your distance with some rockets or a long shot from the Gauss Cannon. Varying your weapon usage also keeps your ammo supply up across the board, which further enables you to raise hell. And not only that, but cycling through your weapons during an encounter with a stronger enemy can also deal far more damage than just sticking to a single one. Take a look at this. A Hell Knight comes out of nowhere, I jump away from its first attack, and then rocket, SSG, Gauss Cannon, boom, he's gone. Sure, I was able to do this because it was just the two of us, but it serves as a testament to not only this game's beautiful grasp on arena combat, but also how well knowledge of your arsenal can serve you in a fight, which are both core elements at the heart of the Doom series. This is especially apparent in boss fights, which quite literally boil down to shooting it until it dies. 
You're not made of ammo and they'll constantly try to catch you if you ever slow down. Which in and of itself is an extension of the game's arena combat to begin with. The spider mastermind in particular is pretty tense. There are periods where touching the floor for too long could spell your end, so you have to deliberately focus on shooting that weak point, while platforms crumble underneath you and you desperately try to stay afloat. Again, not unlike what the rest of the game has you doing. You can also unlock weapon mods to further diversify your playstyle, and you can upgrade the ones you like the most. There are many ways to turn the tables, and it all comes to a head in the game's final level. Waves of enemies closing in on you in swarms, power-ups for when you desperately need a change of plan, and some rapid-fire decision-making all make for some of the most liberating moments in Doom. Truly, you shouldn't have any reason to be afraid at this stage. With everything the game has taught you, the demons should be fearing you. And what better way to empower the player in this moment than with some of Mick Gordon's soothing melodies. I've made an entire 45 minute video on this topic. I honestly consider it a companion piece to this retrospective because Mick Gordon played a significant part in defining this new era of Doom. He essentially created his own instrument to channel a unique type of hell into the music. He transformed a brief that asked him to forego guitars because he realized how important they were to Doom, and therefore he would emulate guitars with his new Doom instrument, mix a chainsaw with a low 9-string guitar riff, and eventually sneak it in wherever he could to give the player the psychological push they needed. This only scratches the surface of what techniques he used, and the soundtrack absolutely deserved every award it received. Once again, lots of discussion in my video on the music of Doom, but the sheer anger in its composition completes the game's flow of combat. You're jumping around the arena, switching weapons rapidly to micromanage a ton of enemies at once, and throwing yourself at them in dire moments to regain your health. The game has beautifully introduced you to its rhythm, and staying on top of everything and utterly desecrating demons is glorious. Violence in video games can be used effectively in so many ways. You can use it as a means of disturbing the player, making them laugh, or as a form of payback. When you are faced with a challenge so fierce, or an enemy so daunting, completely turning the tides and tearing them limb from limb will flood the brain with dopamine as you acknowledge that you were finally able to win. And Doom 2016 absolutely nails this. It's you against the armies of hell, but that's just fine. Combat is only half of what makes this game great, though. The game's level design takes us back to what made Doom the game that it was. You find keys across levels and pick up new weapons along the way. But things are a bit more segmented this time. Although you'll still find enemies placed across each level, this focused combat I've discussed usually comes from the game locking you in an arena or gore nest before you can proceed. These are focused skirmishes that control the game's progression and difficulty, but there's more you can do as things ramp up. You can upgrade your weapons and their various mods with points accumulated from each level, and these points can be allocated in order to decrease recharge times on mods, and otherwise modify them for the better in order to kill demons faster. Let's run through how these points are unlocked. First of all, you can get them from doing designated challenges in each level. Some of these challenges actually loop right back around and feed into the weapon points once more, as they ask you to find toys and upgrades around the level, which already fed into your growth in combat. Others are about doing specific things in combat, which can either be really fun challenges or killing a mancubus with a pistol. Yeah, some of them trail a little too far off from the game's focus design. Sure, I'm gonna enjoy going for specific glory kills or hunting down every secret, but I'm not gonna enjoy going for ridiculously specific tasks that break the pace of the game. 
It doesn't really matter though, because there are plenty of other ways to keep your weapon points up if you're not into the challenges. Such as health, armor, and ammo upgrades, weapon mod drones, and Praetor tokens for upgrading your passive abilities like climbing, movement, radar capabilities, and more. And then you also have rune challenges, which upon completion, unlock an enhancement that you can equip and level up by meeting criteria pertaining to said rune. This continues to bring variety and strategy into a playthrough of this game, as you customize your loadout to meet your playstyle's needs. Basically, everything you do in this game feeds into your growth in combat in two significant ways. Once, through the weapon points that you can rack up through everything you do, and again through the things that you are actually doing, because they contribute to a different kind of tangible growth. It's an absolutely incredible and succinct progression system that makes playing through the length of Doom 2016's campaign feel wholly satisfying. It also helps that the levels in this game are rad, some of the best I've seen in a shooter of this ilk. The Foundry is a tall, multi-layered complex that asks you to scale it for keys and goreness in a non-linear fashion, and it's absolutely crammed with collectibles. Cadinger Sanctum has plenty of secrets too, and it is interwoven as you explore more of it and find the colored skulls. The Argent Tower is fun to climb, but it's the ring around the tower with collectibles and upgrades that completes its design. Although things tend to drag toward the end, especially if you've been going for all those weapon points and you've mastered most of the game, combat still keeps things fresh, and the act of exploring is always fun thanks to how clever id continues to be with the locations of their secrets. Doom 2016, on the whole, was one of the most concisely designed games of that year. And not only was it a return to form for the series, it was an incredible reintroduction of what made first-person shooters fun during their earliest years. Like Wolfenstein The New Order, it blended old and new FPS sensibilities seamlessly, and instilled creativity in the genre once more. That same year, we got Overwatch, Titanfall 2, Prey, and not long after, New Blood Interactive came along and put out Dusk, A Medieval, and more. Whether you were looking for something retro or something modern, shooters were back in business, and id Software weren't about to kill the momentum that they had created. Doom Eternal was announced at E3 2018, and as you could probably imagine, I was ecstatic. I just wanted more of that excellent gameplay loop they'd created. Bethesda's decision to support 2016 through multiplayer DLC genuinely puzzled me, as Deathmatch was not the part of the game that critics and players were raving about. I suppose they didn't feel they needed to push single-player DLC due to the existence of Snapmap, which allowed players to easily publish their own custom levels, but its creation features were fairly limited. I really wanted to see how id could expand on the solid foundation they'd built in 2016, but I guess they saw a full sequel as a more viable option, and it didn't take very long for me to understand why. A couple months later, at QuakeCon 2018, we finally got to see footage of this game in action. Hugo Martin and Marty Stratton, once hoping that people would be receptive to their new take on Doom a few years prior, appeared confident in showing their new game off in front of their newfound fans. They are so passionate about the work they do, and we'll talk more about that later on, but in this moment it was a treat to see that they were as excited as we were to see the Doom Slayer rise again. I love this. It's like his Excalibur and you'll notice there's a little uh, thing on the end there, we call it the meat hook, and you're gonna love what you could do with that thing. It's, it's totally my new favorite. <laughs> they, uh, they were right. The elation in their voices, coupled with the frenetic movement-based gameplay, made the wait for this game even more painful. It was delayed past its original November 2019 release date, finally arriving on March 20th, 2020, the same day as Animal Crossing New Horizons. The explosion of crossover art and animation that came out of that made the global circumstances looming over us hurt a little less. 
both provided me with that dopamine rush for very different reasons, and made for one hell of an evening, let me tell you. It's a moment in Doom history that I don't think we'll ever forget, and it was made all the more special by Doom Eternal's title screen theme. As I outlined in my video on the music of Doom, 2016's soundtrack called back to the first three Doom games on occasion, and adapted those riffs for that signature Mick Gordon style. But the Icon of Sin's whistle from Doom 2 went untouched in Eternal, bridging into a harsh return evocative of the guttural chainsaw guitar combo of the previous game's title screen. It was an amazing way to welcome a Doom veteran back to the series, and things would only get better from here. Once again, no time was wasted. You're just plopped into the game, and you must go forth and kill demons from there. Our first level is aptly and respectfully named Hell on Earth. And what an amazing first level it is. It is even more effective at communicating everything than 2016's intro was, and yet it retains that resentful, no-bullshit mindset. Doom Eternal may have a greater focus on its storytelling, but that doesn't mean it isn't fully aware of how little upfront storytelling actually matters to this series. Like 2016, the Slayer's actions once again accurately reflect how most players should feel about what's going on. And these moments... honestly speak for themselves. The beast! Does, does he not seek enhanced power? Gifts to aid him in his noble conquest? Perhaps in return for my- You can't just shoot a hole into the surface of Mars. These moments only reinforce instances where the Doom Slayer actually appears to be invested in something. Since he shows little concern for most things, if he is willing to kneel before a Sentinel or create a backup of Vega before nuking him in 2016's case, I'm immediately willing to understand his logic. Like, Vega was a comforting, neutral presence throughout Doom 2016, merely a tool at the disposal of the UAC. He wasn't responsible for Hell being unleashed on humanity, and therefore, why should the Slayer have to do away with him? In Eternal, Vega assists the Slayer in the salvation of humanity, and he once again provides you with company in a rather lonely journey. While Doom 2016 was certainly better at creating tension with its brooding atmosphere, Doom Eternal excels at making its most vivid landscapes feel lived in. That's past tense, by the way. You can tell that these places were once bustling civilizations, but have either been evacuated, wiped out, or are under siege by the forces of hell. Exultia was once home to the Royal Sentinels, but it's more or less a ghost town now. A kingdom trapped in stasis. But the green grass and stone towers are massively appreciated as an escape from the dour locations of previous Doom games. To a similar effect, this is Erdak. It is both beautiful and haunting as if you are attempting to breathe life into something that wishes to remain dead. And seeing as it is powered by a so-called purified form of Argent energy, this is a paradise that deserves to remain lost. Speaking of dead people, Necroval is perhaps the most disturbing level in the game. Samuel Hayden walks you through the process of how human souls are sorted, tortured, tenderized, and finally converted into Argent energy. A lot of its imagery is evocative of some of Doom 93's creepiest moments, like that moving wall of faces. 
Then you've got the city that's been overrun by the fleshy super gore nest, the capital city of hell, Taras Nabad. It's all quite a step up from the same UAC hallways and jaws of hell that we've seen way too much of in Doom previously. And these settings aren't just for telling a story or dazzling the player. The levels in this game are more of what you'd expect from Doom, however they have been slightly streamlined to push players forward in mastering the game's combat system. This might sound like a step backward, but it is well justified. And I'll elaborate. Weapon points can only be unlocked by clearing encounters this time, so that means shooting demons to a bloody pulp along the main path, clearing secret encounters that spawn a calculated assortment of demons for you to kill in an enclosed space, or by clearing slayer gates. Ultra hard, focused arenas that assault you with large amount of some of the toughest demons, all in one place. Of course, exploration items still exist in Eternal. You can still find Praetor tokens all around the map, and upgrading your suit is non-linear this time. Rather than upgrading specific suit categories gradually, you can now freely choose to unlock each upgrade at any point in the game, and save up for the ones you want most. You can also find the newly renovated Argent Cells for upgrading your health, armor, and ammo, now called Sentinel Crystals. This time, each upgrade corresponds to a specific unlockable perk, essentially just buffing your existing abilities a little bit more. Runes are now solely focused on being strategic playstyle enhancements that you can discover in levels, to compensate for the ass load of upgrading possible with Praetor tokens now. Like before, they're interchangeable pieces and a playstyle that you can create for yourself. There are a few new collectibles as well, including Sentinel Batteries, which can be allocated to unlock weapon mods, Praetor tokens, and Sentinel Crystals all around your ship, kinda like Metroid Prime 3. The game also features extra lives in its campaign rather than exclusively in an alternative arcade mode. You don't earn these things through a scoring system or anything, you actively have to seek them out. If you die while holding onto one, you'll immediately respawn with full health right where you died in the middle of combat. Just when I thought it wasn't possible to repurpose extra lives in a modern game, its software finds a simple and elegant way. So there's still plenty to collect, but because these items don't feed into the weapon point system anymore, exploration and combat are further removed from each other than they were in 2016. I understand that that may be off-putting, but the game really wants you to understand its combat system. The developers put an insane amount of time and effort into delicately crafting a combat loop that has substance. Doom Eternal is much harder than its predecessor, and it is not afraid to kick your ass if you're unprepared. So. As a blanket statement, yes, you should absolutely be pushing yourself to explore for upgrades, just so that you can protect yourself and have an edge in combat when you need it. And trust me, you will. You should also be challenging yourself to understand Doom Eternal's astounding combat cycle. It is so involved that it makes Doom 2016 seem tame in comparison. It is brilliantly structured, endlessly rewarding, and despite everything that you're seeing on screen right now, Anyone, and I mean anyone, can do this because it is effectively communicated to you throughout your journey, and the more you put in, the more you get out of it. Let's rewind to the first level once more. After retrieving your first weapon mods, the game will introduce you to the Arachnatron. The Arachnatron has a weak point, its turret. Once you take the turret out, the poor thing is essentially rendered a walking target. So pop a sticky bomb on its turret, switch to your full auto mod, and blast it into oblivion. As you unlock further weapon mods and more powerful weapons, you'll discover new and more efficient ways to destroy its turret. A precision scope shot with the assault rifle, a ballista missile, even a single rocket is enough. Varying the methods in which you take out this weak point will afford you more ammo for your other weapons in the long run. And trust me, you're gonna need all your weapons to beat this game. As you make your way through the rest of the campaign, 
You'll be introduced to new weak points. Headshotting imps and soldiers will kill them instantly. The Kako Demon is weak to a swallowed sticky bomb or grenade. A charging pinky can be utterly humiliated with a swift blast to its tail. The carcass's shield can be shot with a plasma weapon to detonate it and hurt demons in its vicinity. And the Mancubus and Revenant are rendered useless if you take out their guns or jets, respectively. Now, when you throw all of these demons in an arena together, you'll have to juggle all of these weak points at the same time. And remember, their attack patterns are aggressive. Clear those Slayer Gates and unlock the Unmaker, beat those secret encounters, level up your weapon mods so that you can eventually master every aspect of this game's design. Let's talk about the tools put in place to help you on this journey. You can dash twice before you need to recharge, and the Super Shotgun has an aptly named Meat Hook that can latch onto enemies and pull you towards them. This move alone sold me on the game, and there's always a practical use for it, especially in wide open areas. Glory kills are back of course, but there are other options that exist pretty much entirely in the heat of battle. If you're ever running low on ammo, these lowly imps that once posed a threat can now be viewed as ammo packs thanks to your trusty chainsaw. As long as you have at least one pip on your chainsaw, you can replenish some of your ammo off of these fellas. In high intensity arena battles, these demons are begging to be chainsawed. Yeah, the chainsaw functions similarly to Doom 2016 otherwise, but because it automatically recharges, it keeps you in the fray. You no longer have to run around looking for ammo during a fight. You've also got the Flame Belch, which causes demons to bleed armor pickups. The more demons you burn, the more armor you get back. There's the Glorious Blood Punch, which is a fine crowd control tool, and you can upgrade it to have enemies explode into health. And then there's the Ice Bomb, which can stun enemies in place, and if you upgrade it, they'll bleed health as you shoot them in this state. So you have sources of health, armor, and ammo available to you in any fight and the strategy comes from knowing exactly when to use them. If you panic and use your belch or ice bomb too early, the rewards you reap from them will only last on a short-term basis. You have to formulate a plan. Allocating your weapon points to mods is also extremely important to mastering this game. In fact, it's right there on the screen. Weapon Mastery. Like Doom 2016, mastering each weapon will assist you practically in battle, and tangibly with each weapon mod's capabilities improving. Here are some of my favorite examples of what can be done after I seek out every optional challenge, unlock things with the weapon points I've earned, and finally master each mod. A headshot with the assault rifle's scope will cause AoE damage, which is great for crowd control. Detonating a rocket will lodge shrapnel in nearby demon's flesh, causing additional damage. The sticky bomb launcher can hold 5 bombs at once, which utterly decimates crowds, weak points, and even bigger demons themselves. A fully charged heat blast will result in the plasma rifle's damage being overcharged for a brief period. The chain gun's mobile turret mode will never stall, meaning that you can just shoot for as long as you need to. And finally, my favorite upgrade, the meat hook will light attached demons on fire, causing armor to spill out of them. So not only are you using the meat hook for movement's sake, once you achieve mastery with it, it becomes yet another pawn in this game of mental chess. Such emphatically satisfying rewards for my efforts, and using them correctly just rewards me even more. It's just endless depth, this endless cycle of fitting the right pieces into the jigsaw puzzle of Doom Eternal's combat rhythm. And I feel it's necessary to establish what can be done once you put that effort in, because it establishes that, while exploration doesn't directly affect combat, it can still reward you with that same tangible and psychological experience needed to get better at this game. Even with all of this knowledge committed to memory, the game doesn't pull any punches. When you're first introduced to the Doom Hunter, it's a tough boss battle. This thing will scoot and toot all over the arena, it's damn fast, and its missiles are deadly. It is a great test of everything you've learned up to that point. 
Its weak point is its hovercraft, and destroying it will cut off its missile supply and cripple its speed, so you'll need to deal with that quickly. But your weapons can only shoot so fast, especially at that point in the game. And the designers intentionally cut each weapon's ammo reserves down significantly. So what can you do? Well, one of this game's little tutorial videos shows you how beneficial hot swapping your weapons can be. You don't need to do this in order to finish the game, as players not equipped to deal with action games might find the act of doing it overwhelming. However, switching weapons on the fly as you assess each situation has always been a core part of Doom's design. In Doom Eternal, it has been streamlined so that you can do it to negate reloading and recharge times, while also spreading your ammo consumption across all of your weapons, rather than draining a single one. So, in order to kill this Doom Hunter, I switched between my scoped assault rifle, my rocket launcher, and my super shotgun a few times until the hovercraft, and eventually the boss, are no more. And just when you thought you'd already turned the predator into prey, the Hell Priest spawns two of them. This is how you turn simply beating a boss into mastering a boss, a step that Doom Eternal doesn't take lightly. Our next example, the Marauder. All of the enemies in Doom Eternal up to this point ask you to perform a certain task to kill them. Even the big demons ask something of you, despite not having definable weak points. Mowing them down in Eternal is a lot more difficult when you're being swarmed, so you'll have to prioritize your targets and give yourself the time and space to kill them later. Don't worry, Mr. Tyrant, it'll be your turn in a second. The difference between every other demon and the Marauder is that they'll always be open and receptive to your bullets. The Marauder is a demon that you have to punish within a specific window in which his eyes glow green. If you're too far away, he'll send his dog after you or throw his axe. And he'll sprint after you and find you no matter where you go. And if you're too close, he'll shoot you. At medium range, he'll lunge at you and that's your only moment to strike. During that stun period, which was made more obvious in a recent update, you'll have to deal as much damage as you possibly can before he starts moving. The world doesn't stop for the Marauder though, and that is made especially apparent in the level Sentinel Prime, where they spawn a Marauder alongside a ton of disruptive demons. You'll have to drop everything you're doing and kill him, or pull off some excellent movement to thin out the herd first. Either way, these scenarios are relentless. And that's why your first fight with a Marauder takes place in an enclosed arena. It's just you and him. Hey, remember hot swapping? Doing this efficiently isn't something you can learn in one night, but it'll utterly mutilate demons in a matter of seconds if done correctly. There are different variations and speeds that you can experiment with until you feel comfortable. This contributes to the speed in which you deal with enemy weak points, as well as crowd control and tankier demons in their entirety. It makes for some of the most satisfying skirmishes I've ever had with demons in this game, and for some of the most graceful combat I've ever experienced in a first-person shooter. It's not the blazingly fast nature in which I switch and shoot my weapons that makes it feel good. It's that I am in control of every weak point that I destroy, every demon that I slaughter, every piece of loot that I draw from them, and every weapon that I choose to switch to in order to solve a problem. So what does this have to do with the Marauder? Well, once you are successful in landing a stun on him, you then have a limited amount of time to do as much damage as possible before he attacks again. For the sake of control, and because I am not nearly as skilled as I make myself seem, I focus on swapping between my super shotgun and ballista for each stun, while occasionally throwing in a grenade. After diligently stunning him each time, I finally catch him and finish him off. But of course, this isn't the last time you run into the Marauder, they gradually place him in more precarious situations, as I've demonstrated, until it gets to the point where he's just another demon to kill. He's a much faster demon, but still a demon nonetheless, and he'll go down when I decide he'll go down. 
At one point, this guy was one of my biggest hurdles in mastering Doom Eternal. I was tripping over him at every turn because he was the ultimate test of Doom Eternal's combat rhythm. He was fast, he exploited your spatial awareness, and he was hard to manage because his mechanics are opposite that of other demons. But when you catch him in his own loop? Boy does it feel great! The Marauder also invites some of the most creative kill potential I've seen in this game. Essentially, if you have the time and space to focus on a Marauder, you can stunlock them into a one-cycle combo. This means you can do stuff like this. The Chain Gun Shield is underrated. The Marauder is such an essential enemy to Doom Eternal's design. By inverting the principles that you've been conditioned to, they've essentially forced you to see the entire game in a different light. Every weak point, every demon, every weapon, and every minute movement you make can be optimized for efficiency and survival. It takes tremendous diligence to get in that zone, but once you're in there, you'll discover one of the greatest dopamine-fueled single-player games ever crafted. Dealing so much damage in such a short time span became such a rush that I swear I fried my dopamine receptors fighting the con maker. All of the thought that goes into selecting your weapons and mods is channeled into a frenzy of platforming and hot swapping mayhem. I killed her in record time, just unloading every round I had from all of my guns and popping a maker drone whenever I needed a refill. I tried not to miss a single beat and it paid off. And that's why I fucking love this game. It encourages creativity, it endlessly rewards diversity in your weapon utilization, and it feels euphoric to rise above the challenges at hand. It's funny, really. I've described Doom Eternal's combat as this intricate game of demonic chess, but when you break it down, it's all about using the right tool at the right time. Much like the original Doom. Doom Eternal's loop is so unique, and it's its own beast in many ways. But in spirit? It channels the original game by being both strategic and primal and we've seen how strategy factors into its design. All that's left to show you is the unbridled rage and bloodlust that you can unleash. When everything falls into place, and you know how to use each weapon effectively and exploit every weak point adeptly, demons will drop like flies before you. For all intents and purposes, you are their doom. The only thing they fear is you. Now despite all but mastering the game, despite having 25 extra lives left over by the end of my campaign on Ultraviolence, and despite tearing my way through the exorbitant demon counts and master levels, the game's Ancient Gods DLC still kicked my ass. Seriously, it makes the campaign look like child's play. It is meticulously crafted to bring out the best in its players at every turn. You get an inkling of this through the unholy amount of tough enemies they throw at you in the beginning, but it really begins to sink in at the end of the UAC Atlantica facility. After every ambush and reducing every demon in my path to ashes, including this poor Mancubus, I felt that I was... a little proficient at this game? I think that's a fair assumption to make. I can keep my head above water. But as I proceed toward my objective, I'm locked in, and two marauders emerge from their portals. 
two. So that's two wolves to keep track of, two green flashes to micromanage, and two barrages of attacks going on at once. If you thought managing a marauder alongside every other demon in the game was tricky enough, how about balancing two of them? This DLC pack came out at a time when the Marauder was being harshly criticized by certain figures in mainstream game journalism. I won't comment on whether or not those criticisms were justified. Try, try playing with a controller, maybe. But I think showing you clips of how you can keep tabs on this fucker without breaking your own pace, as well as the case I've made for him, are proof enough of how important he is to the game. And if you feel like he's dealing too much damage while you're trying to learn his patterns, there's absolutely no shame in turning the difficulty down. None. There's a reason the difficulty selection even exists. But the Marauder is both a study tool and a question on the final exam of Doom Eternal's cycle of shooting. And the next logical step in the Marauder's difficulty curve would be to introduce two of them. The next step after that would be to make him faster. The Ancient Gods introduced a new enemy type called Spirits. They possess enemies to give them more health, speed, and damage. To kill them for good, you'll need to use the Microwave Beam mod on them until they explode, introducing a dedicated target that you'll need to prioritize in the ever-changing landscape of Doom Eternal's combat sandbox. One of the optional Slayer Gates in Part 1 throws everything at you. An Archvile spawning the big demons, an Armored Maker drone which, like the Marauder, is only killable when it flashes green, and two Doom Hunters in a very small arena. Very difficult, but with the diligence and skills I've accumulated, I can kill everything eventually. Then comes in a Possessed Marauder. It's like a Marauder, except you have less time to react, and he has many more opportunities to embarrass you. Capping such a brutal Slayer Gate off with this thing, and then finally killing it, will make any player feel like a god, which ties back into the thesis of Doom Eternal itself. And that's what the Ancient Gods is. It gives 110%, and it crushes you if you let it. It is an extension of Doom Eternal's purpose, and I am here for it. What I appreciate most about Ancient Gods Part 1 is how concise and focused it is. It has such a beautiful understanding of what makes a good difficulty curve. Lots of big demons, two marauders, and a marauder in a very tight and enclosed space. A spirit, a spirit possessing a big demon, a spirit possessing a marauder, and finally two spirits possessing heavy hitting demons in the final boss's case. You've got a few little demons to shred for ammo, and very few resources to draw from. You have to let loose an unrelenting barrage of damage as they dart around the arena, and you need to use every platform to your advantage. The Ancient Gods Part 2 is similarly concise, and it gives you a new toy to play with. The Sentinel Hammer can stun any demon for a long period of time, including the Marauder. Although, to directly counteract over-reliance on it for simply killing demons, they introduce Screechers. You don't want to disturb these things. Anything that hears its screech will become buffed until they die like speed buffed and damage buffed. You don't want that. It is hell, but once again, it goes to show how much thought actually goes into shooting demons in Doom Eternal. Using the hammer effectively is key in defeating the final boss, the Dark Lord himself. Right before this fight, they give you a cheeky little area to mess around in, just popping off your full auto mod until you're ready to proceed. In the fight, any mistake is too great, as he reaps health from any damage he deals. You need to dodge every swing of his massive sword, and anticipate every devastating shield bash. It's really easy to hate this boss. It is incessantly punishing, and threatens to reset your progress with each mistake you make. Basically, to deal damage, you need to counter his green flash and then follow it up with a hammer swing. During his stun period, you need to deal as much damage as you possibly fucking can. 
At one point, I think I managed to sap nearly half of his health bar, which gave me room for error. However, the window of opportunity for executing this stun shrinks as the fight proceeds. You can refill your hammer by killing these grunts that he spawns, but sometimes he'll spawn hefty demons right after that are best dealt with by using the hammer again. If you decide to use weapons to deal with them, all of your focus is drawn away from the Dark Lord, which can result in you losing progress as he steals health from you while you aren't looking, or your own demise. It is an overwhelming balancing act, but because of how the boss is designed, defeating it acts as a mark of mastery over this game's combat. The ultimate test, the be-all, end all of Doom Eternal. And that's why I love it dearly. Another thing that's great about the Ancient Gods? The soundtrack. After id Software and Mick Gordon parted ways, speculation rose over who would fill his shoes. And those were massive shoes to fill. No one could ever truly encapsulate or mimic what he had accomplished with his unique compositional stylings without it feeling disingenuous. With that in mind, processing their potential pick for a composer became a lot easier for me. There was only one person they could pick for the job that would make people happy. Andrew Hulschult released a cover album a few years back that faithfully reorchestrated every song from the original Doom, and he included an easter egg at the end as a reference to Doom 2. As you enter the Icon of Sin's boss fight, you'll hear a voice that says something in reverse. Famously, John Romero's head sits impaled on a spike just outside of your view. In Andrew's album, he included this easter egg. To win the game, you must hire me, Andrew And so they did. Having already been a fan of his work thanks to Dusk, I was eager to hear some of his work on Doom Eternal. And what I love about his work is that he embraced the fact that no one can truly replicate an artist with such individuality as Mick Gordon. This wasn't Mick's soundtrack, this was Andrew's. And he was free to imbue his own style into the game. His trademark rhythmic, groove-based metal tracks are in full effect, and I deeply appreciate them. But perhaps the most underrated aspect of the Ancient Gods DLC was its ability to demonstrate the return of humanity. There's the reclaimed Earth level that gives hope for the re-establishment of society, and the intro to Amora, which is strongly and very blatantly evocative of Avengers Endgame. But then there's the intern. He's such an amazing, genuine, and relatable companion throughout these DLC packs, because he was such a huge nerd. He was willing to help out in any way he could, not just because it would see humanity restored, but also because he was able to geek out over the Slayer's actions and directly provide him with support without clamming up like everyone else does. What a chad. And wouldn't you believe it? His nerdiness is a direct reflection of who the Doom Slayer really is on the inside. A big old geek. In the Fortress of Doom, you can actually enter the Slayer's man cave. He's got a toy collection, that triple monitor setup, a few guitars laying around, and you can play Doom 1 and 2 in their entirety at his desk. But he also has a painting of his beloved pet rabbit, Daisy, and a picture of his family. Doom Slayer may be this unparalleled bringer of destruction, but he's also human. He experienced losses just as everyone else did during this crisis on Earth. 
and this gives context to pretty much everything he's ever done in 2016 and Eternal. Not that you really needed context to begin with. And yet, these details are entirely optional clues to who he is, and are easily missed, tying us back to the brilliant handling of 2016 and Eternal's narrative. Of course, the geeky stuff is likely just the developers pouring a bit of who they are into the game. Check out the Slayer's book collection, Green Eggs and Pentagram, The Caco in the Rye, The Ripping Tree, Don Slayote, Slayenstein, Fifty Shades of Slay, Eat Rip Tear. This is the most detailed part of the game and it's something that you might pass up completely. The Slayer's Man Cave is a testament to how passionate the team is about their game. Hugo Martin is a model director, always eager to discuss the decision making that goes into designing Doom Eternal. In almost every interview, he's quick to justify his thinking and liken the various moving parts to other art mediums. He's a great big nerd, just like us. But he isn't deceptively charismatic or anything in these interviews. He is so open to accepting criticism and implementing changes into the game so that it's always at its best. He's acknowledged bugs and retroactively criticized decisions that he made, like the tentacles in the fog, for example, in The Ancient Gods Part 1. He's completely willing to admit when he's made a mistake. I highly recommend that you check out the interviews he did with Tyler McVicker. He goes into detail about a lot of the stuff that I've mentioned, and I don't want to steal his or Tyler's thunder. I will always strive to be the kind of creative that Hugo is, and I have to reassure him by saying this. Doom Eternal is one of the greatest experiences I've ever had in any medium of entertainment. I will continue to replay this game for years to come, because I'm never truly done with it. I can always improve, and even if I'm just messing around and playing a few master levels, it still puts up a fight and I don't feel like I'm aimlessly shooting at things until I've had my fix. It is everything that I could have ever wanted in a first person shooter. And here we are. We've seen the various ways that Doom allows us to weaponize its namesake, and how each game has its own take on turning the tables. But for years, it's always been more than that. Doom is as far removed from realism as you could possibly get with a video game. It is the kind of escape that people have always needed. It might seem like people crowding around a PC at work to play Doom back then would be counterproductive, but that was kind of the whole point. Stressed about work? Play Doom. Anxious about the future? Play Doom. Anxious? Play Doom. Bored? You get it. It is a universal remedy. As you work through these problems and move on with your life, you'll always have an outlet to ease some of the tension that comes with these problems. If Doom truly was the mindless game that some have perceived it as, it wouldn't be fulfilling as an outlet. If it was mindless, you'd shoot some demons and turn the game off when you get bored. And that's why when I shower praise on the Doom games that have you earn your dominance over demons, it's because it's coming from a very real place. Doom was there for me when I needed it most. When I was sick with leukemia, severely anxious in high school, and stressed in college, it was a comforting presence. And because I actually had to use my brain and reflexes to play well, it took all of my focus away from what was worrying me, if only for a moment. It helped me, and it continues to help me. And that's why I've been a Doom fan my whole life. So yeah, it's a pretty good game. But based on the colossal legacy it created for itself, I don't think you needed me to tell you that. I've been Liam Triforce. Thanks for watching. Now, you guys want to play Doom?